Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sunday, visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. If you've been with us for the last six weeks, uh, you know that we have been examining God's original design for humanity. And today, uh, we will examine one final element uh, before moving into the narrative arc of Scripture. But in chapter 1, as we've been studying, uh, God creates humanity in His image and He places them over creation. Uh, to rule and reign as his vice regents, to guide and shape uh, creation in partnership with him. And in chapter 2, we get an in-depth look at the creation of Adam and Eve and uh, the creation of the Garden of Eden. But there's one single phrase that I want us to focus in on this morning, and that is uh, chapter 2, verse 15. This is what it says. It says, The Lord God took the man, that's Adam, and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. That's it. That's what we'll be working with this morning. Uh, Shortly after this moment, God creates Eve, and the two of them are charged with carrying out this task side by side. But what exactly is God asking them to do? First, they are to work it or to work the ground. In chapter 1, we see in the opening verses of Scripture that God takes what is formless and empty, or better stated, what is chaotic and useless, what is uncultivated and uninhabited, and he forms it into a beautiful garden full of life and potential. But then God creates human beings and he tells them to carry on his work in the world. They are to continue uh, creating and cultivating and shaping the raw elements that God has given them. Work the ground. Take this massive plot of land and bring order and beauty to it. Work it. Wring profit from its hands. Take soil and seed and wood and metal ore and do something with it. Make this garden into a garden-like city. A place that buzzes and hums with life and energy and culture and beauty. Make tools and buildings and art and architecture and music and wine and culture and go shape creation into something beautiful where life and humanity flourish and happen side by side in God's presence. Work the ground. Take the raw elements that you find and shape them into fields and farms and villages and cities and satellites and homes and airplanes and iPhone 12s. Here's raw creation. Take it somewhere. 
And not only that, but God says, care for it as well. As you shape creation, as you cultivate and make farms and cities and mine stuff out of the ground and catch fish and cut down trees, make sure that you are caring for this place along the way. Here, God says, I place planet Earth under your care, under your stewardship. Now rule over it as I would, in partnership with me. Let's guide this project together in such a way that creation experiences order and beauty and shalom. I've placed this under your care, so care for it. Work it and care for it. If we have one without the other, then we typically get into trouble. But uh, both of them working in tandem creates something rather beautiful. In fact, the Hebrew word for work it is, and I'll probably mispronounce these, but the Hebrew word for work it is abed, and care for it is shamar. And scholars note that when these two words are used in tandem or side by side, uh, they actually become temple language. So if you search the rest of scripture, what you'll see is that these words are used sometimes for agriculture, sometimes for vocation and calling, but most often when they're used together, they describe what the Levitical priests do in the temple. The priests are to abed. The priests are to shamar. They are to guide and keep and care for the temple. Their vocation is to make sure that things are running smoothly. They were to maintain order and sustain the equilibrium that God established in the beginning. And so the imagery that we're given here in chapter 2 is actually of Adam and Eve almost being commissioned as priests in God's temple. And there are plenty of other clues within the text that this might be the case. For example, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, that sacred space was often loaded with imagery of fertile waters flowing out of God's divine presence. And in fact, gardens in the ancient Near East were often built adjacent to temples or built to surround temples as if to show the life and fertility that was resulting from the presence of that deity. Perhaps more significantly, ancient temples were inaugurated or dedicated upon their physical completion. And it was not uncommon in the ancient world and in Israel for that ceremony to last seven days. Six days to prepare the temple and make it functional. And a seventh day set aside for God to come and rest or take up his dwelling within the temple itself. So when we read Genesis 1 and 2 in the modern day, it's easy to see the seventh day of rest as sort of a waste within the text. It's an odd footnote 
or an encouragement to Sabbath or something like that. It is inconsequential in our view. But in the ancient worldview, it was perhaps the most important day, and it was the day that made sense of all of the rest. God had created all of the raw elements of creation, and then he takes six days to order his temple, to make it functional, to prepare the way, and a seventh day to come and rest or take up his dwelling within the temple Itself. He takes up residence there. Which makes perfect sense if you consider that ancient temples were considered places of divine rest or divine dwelling. They were the place where that deity would sit enthroned. It was the center of operations from which that deity would rule the world. But let me ask you this. In the text of Genesis, where is God's temple? There isn't one. In fact, all of the cosmos is pictured as God's temple. And Eden is the center. It's the holy of holies, so to speak. It's the place where God will dwell. It's the center of his operations on earth, the place from which order and beauty are meant to expand outward until one day they cover the entire earth. And Adam and Eve, in a sense, are created as priests in God's temple. They're brought into the center, into the holy of holies, to abed and shamar, to guard and keep, to cultivate and care for, to do temple stuff. To create a place in which humanity and creation will simultaneously flourish in God's presence. And the question becomes, what went wrong? Because planet Earth is beautiful to be sure, but it doesn't seem to be flooded with God's presence. It doesn't seem to be this inspired place where God and humanity work together to bring order and beauty to every square inch. Humanity and creation do not seem to be simultaneously flourishing side by side as God intended. And what this does to ask that question, in a sense, uh, is to bring us face to face with human failure. That Adam and Eve, right in the center of everything, within the holy of holies, so to speak, uh, start a rebellion against God. And from that moment forward, humanity and creation begin uh, this terrible downward spiral that we get to trace through the storyline of Scripture. And one of the tragic results is that this beautiful balance that was intended of working the earth and caring for the earth seems to have been thrown tragically off kilter. There's a sense in which we did not want to abed and shamar with God as the center, 
but instead we wanted to run creation with ourselves at the center. And, and tragedy has resulted. We still remember how to work it. Uh, that's in our bones. Uh, that, that's necessary for our survival. We still act on the impulse to cultivate and inhabit and cut and, and mine and build and shape. We know how to work it or how to wring profit from its hand. But I'm going to argue that one of the results of our rebellion is that we've sort of lost sight of this idea of the earth as God's temple. And we've forgotten along the way how to care for it. And here are just a snapshot or a few signs that that might be the case. Uh, since the 1950s, which wasn't that long ago, the world's population has tripled in size. And not only that, but the average that each person is consuming is on the rise as well. The demand for resources is higher than ever, and we consume more than ever before. Consumption of the planet's resources has tripled just in the last 40 years. And as a result, worldwide, we are expected to see diminishing supplies of oil, water, and everything else in between. Our forests and wetlands are disappearing at an alarming rate, and in large part, our forests are being cut down so that we can clear more land, to feed more cows, to make more meat. And most of the land being cleared is tropical rainforests. These rainforests, uh, which harbor most of the world's biodiversity, are being cut down at a rate of several football fields per minute. And if we continue cutting them at that rate, in a hundred years or less, there will be no rainforests left on planet Earth which among other things means less oxygen, less medicine, and less biodiversity. In the process, it should be no surprise that we are currently seeing a mass extinction of species worldwide with dozens of species going extinct every day, day after day. In a healthy world, we would lose roughly four or five species a year to extinction. At our current rate, it's closer to four or five species an hour, which experts are estimating is somewhere between 1,000 and 10,000 times the natural rate. Since you arrived this morning, we have lost several species, and by the time you get in your car to drive home, we will have lost several more. When it comes to energy and transportation, humanity emits somewhere around 40 billion tons of carbon dioxide every year, year after year, and our atmosphere is actually much smaller than we typically give it credit for. So it's no surprise that in the process, 
our atmosphere is beginning to change. More CO2 means higher global temperatures, less ice caps, more deserts, and the acidification of the ocean along the way. Uh, ironically, forests and wetlands would usually help absorb that, um, but as I mentioned earlier, they are slowly or sometimes quickly disappearing. In their absence, much of our excess CO2 ends up being absorbed by the oceans, which acidifies the water. Uh, and that means that thousands of species of ocean life are now going extinct in the process. The oceans are essentially being poisoned on the one hand and overfished on the other, with global fisheries being depleted worldwide, and many of them headed toward collapse. In our own backyard, here in the Columbia River, uh, it was estimated that historic salmon runs uh, once reached over a billion fish per year. If you can imagine that, our rivers were literally bursting with them. And uh, through the process of building dams, dumping our pollutants in the river and fishing all that we could, we have uh, managed to erase over 99% of the population of our salmon, with less than 1% hanging on. When it comes to what we consume, hour by hour, day by day, Americans are currently consuming, on average, about five to 10 times what they should be in a sustainable world. And uh, much of what we consume ends up being used short-term and thrown into the landfill. But as we do that, it's uh, helpful to note that something as uh, innocuous as a plastic bottle or a plastic shopping bag will take up to 1,000 years to naturally decompose. And something like a glass bottle would take even longer, by some estimates, a million years to break down. Which means that if Jesus had drank out of a glass bottle and tossed it on the side of the road in Jerusalem, we would still have that glass bottle sitting on the side of the, uh, on the, side of the road today. Uh, sadly, uh, much of what doesn't end up in the landfill will eventually end up in our oceans, and it's beginning to accumulate there as well. Uh, right now, off the coast of California, there is an island of floating trash that is bigger than California, by far. Uh, by some estimates, it's twice the size of Texas, and that's just what floats. It seems that half of humanity uh, views the oceans as a toilet uh, and the other half as a food source. But all across the board, whether it's our forests, our oceans, or our air, the alarm bells are going off. By all measurable standards, it would seem that our planet is dying that it is slowly suffocating under the weight of our consumption and the profit that we wring from its hands. We're really good at working it, not so good at caring for it. 
And if you sense that I'm interested in this topic, um, it's because I actually majored in ecology and spent years in environmental education and then as an environmental attorney uh, before God called me to be a pastor. And so um, it was my original hope and goal to make a career out of this very thing, out of balancing work and care, uh, humanity and nature, conservation and consumption, working it and caring for it. Uh, And in case you were wondering, yes, I did grow up watching Captain Planet. But as I grew older, I was also introduced to the world of Scripture. And when you open the first pages, you see pretty quickly that God called us to care for it as well as cultivated, and in all honesty, we're just not doing a very good job. And we really can't afford to get this one wrong. The effect of our ultimate failure would be, will be, catastrophic. This is what we've done to God's temple. God says, hey, here's creation. It's absolutely beautiful. It's bursting with life and potential. Shape it, care for it, turn it into a garden-like city where I will dwell with you and both creation and humanity can flourish. And in essence, we turned around and said, thanks, but no thanks. God, you can take a hike. We don't need you. Uh, we'll grab the reins and we're going to work this thing into the ground. And suck it dry and get as much profit from it as we can. And, and why shouldn't we? We will wring profit from its hands. That much is clear. But I think we've lost sight of the plot line in more ways than one. We rarely see it as our duty to care or to steward what's been given to us. And I think collectively we are miles away from seeing all of creation as the space intended for God's temple. To make matters more complicated, You've got certain groups within Christianity who see the problem for what it is and say essentially, well, so what? God gave us dominion over the earth. We have every right to work this thing into the ground and suck it dry. We have every right to wring profit from his hands. And, and what's the point of caring for creation? It's all going to burn anyways. We might as well kill and harvest and cut and burn and shoot and clear cuts as much as we can. The problem is that aside from being offensive to most people, it also represents a gross misreading of the text of Genesis and a misinterpretation of our future hope as well. The scriptures open with God and humanity in a temple-like garden, tasked with taking it somewhere in God's presence. But think about this. 
Where do the scriptures end? The biblical storyline starts in a temple-like garden, but it ends in a garden-like city in which the entire earth is once again pictured as God's temple or God's dwelling place. This is Revelation 21. John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. This has been God's goal from the beginning. And one day Jesus will return not to scrap this reality and throw it all away, but to redeem this reality and flood every square inch of it with the presence of God. The earth will be his temple once more. And God's plan for the cosmos is not to save some souls out of it and burn the rest down. It is to resurrect the faithful into it and redeem every square inch. As followers of Jesus, we have every reason to hope for the future of this world. When Jesus returns and sets everything right, but we also have every reason to work for the renewal of this world in the here and now. And in case you're struggling to connect the dots between them, consider this. When Jesus returns to usher in the new heavens and the new earth, you will be resurrected from the dead. Your body and all of who you are will be brought back together into a new and renewed resurrected body you will be completely restored and you will experience life beyond anything that you have experienced in this world and therefore in the here and now we have hope we have hope in the face of illness and death because we know that god will restore redeem and set free what is currently subject to death are you with me? That, that gives us hope. So in fatal illness and in death, we have this hope for the future. But not only do we have hope of a future resurrected body, but because of the gospel, we actually have reasons to respect and honor the physical bodies that we have. Are you tracking with me? Our physical bodies, according to the gospel, are not evil. They are not the prison house for our souls. They are not some useless shell to be shed or escaped. The scriptures actually say that our bodies are good, that they will be restored one day, and that your body was intended to be a temple for the Holy Spirit. Interesting. Therefore, Paul says, you, you should respect and honor your body. You, you should view it 
with a new sense of appreciation and reverence? Can you imagine if your response to the gospel was to trash your body? I mean, can you imagine if you met Jesus and, and overnight you decided to change your diet to Twinkies and fried chicken and, and you decided to start chain smoking from the moment you woke up to the moment you went to bed and for your New Year's resolution, you gave up getting off the couch. And if anyone asks you, hey, wh- wh- what, what on earth are you doing? Why are you doing this? Your response would be, Oh, it's because of Jesus. And, and who cares? It's all going to burn anyhow. Live it up. God's going to restore my body at the end of time. So what do I care? Let's trash this thing. Can you imagine if that was your witness? It, it's insane. And yet... Somehow, that's what we end up doing with creation. It's from God. It's good. It's going to be restored one day. It is intended to be God's temple. And yet, somehow, we arrive at this attitude that says, well, God's going to scrap it all one day, so we might as well strip mine it while we have the chance. Really? Is that what the Scriptures say? Not at all. Creation isn't going to be thrown out. It's going to be redeemed. It's going to be restored. One day it will be God's temple in the fullest sense of the word. And that should absolutely shape the way that we think about life in the here and now. In the meantime, God has placed creation under our care. Why? Well, probably because it's worth caring for. And and at the end of the age, he'll come back and say, all right, What'd you do with my temple? And, and I imagine many of us will feel a little bit shocked. What? Oh, th- you mean this, this place? Do you like what we've done with it? Oops. See, we, d- we didn't think you cared about this place, God. We, we thought the goal was to escape this place. Perhaps we got it wrong. And God's going to say, no, unfortunately, that's, that's not the case. I'm actually here to restore this place, to make it new again. And if that's true, then part of our calling as followers of Jesus, with that future hope in mind, is to start dragging bits and pieces of that future place into the present. Or as Jesus said, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, on earth as it one day will be when your kingdom comes in full in the new heavens and the new earth, would more and more of that place break into this one? It's actually God's affirmation of the goodness of physical reality on the first page 
and God's promise to renew physical reality on the last page that give us the strength, hope, vision, and desire to see the world restored in the here and now. The atheist says, hey, let's care for creation because it's all we have and it's all we're ever going to have. Or in the negative, hey, let's take all that we can from creation. Let's rob it blind because this life is all I have and it's all I will ever have. The follower of Jesus actually says, hey, let's care for creation because God placed it under our care. He entrusted it to us in the beginning. And that's what God is coming back to finish and restore at the end. This is part of what it means to see God's kingdom come, to see his will be done. And I will act meaningfully in the present precisely because I have tangible hope in the future. So, uh, as we close, a quick word on how. Uh, How do we act on that future hope in the here and now? How do we join God in affirming the goodness of physical creation in the here and now? How do we take up that ancient call of working and cultivating and caring at the same time? And of course, at this point, there's about a hundred ways that we could approach possible solutions or answers to that question. And we could talk about everything from recycling to what you eat to alternative energy to alternative fuel to overconsumption to pollution. The list goes on and on and on. But I think for the sake of simplicity, a good place to start during the holiday season is by asking ourselves a few simple questions. Do I need this? Where does it come from and where is it headed? If there's an easy place to start in America, if there's low-hanging fruit, so to speak, it's our overconsumption. We consume because we can and we rarely count the cost as we do. We don't think about whether or not we need, we think about whether or not we want or whether or not we can. We don't think about where our stuff comes from, what it costs to produce in terms of resources, in terms of the earth, in terms of what was sacrificed, in terms of potentially slaves who helped make it. We we don't think about any of the cost. The only cost we think about is the price tag. Can I consume? Yes. Is the price low enough? Yes. Will this thing be thrown out in a month, two, three? Yes. Do I care? No. What's the true cost behind the things that we're buying and where is it headed when we're finished? Where does my food come from? Where do my clothes come from? Where does my fuel come from? What do I consume and why am I consuming it? We ask these questions because fast fashion And McDonald's cheeseburgers and fossil fuels and plastic bottles all have very real effects on the creation that God has entrusted to us. And and because of the way we've structured our, our lives in the modern world, we don't see any of it. 
It wasn't that long ago that people were directly connected to the land. They saw everything. We don't see it anymore. We don't see any of it. It's out of sight, out of mind. What's the price? Sure, I'll take two. Even when we do stop to think and try and answer these questions, it's hard to know where to start. Uh, But the simplest encouragement I can leave you with this morning is just to start somewhere. None of us is perfect. None of us is going to nail this overnight. But the call of the scriptures is simply to care. To start somewhere. To do something. Have hope in the future and act meaningfully in the present. For some of us, that starts with recycling or thinking about what we eat and our meat consumption or whether or not things were organic or how far away they came from. For some of us, it's a rejecting fast fashion. For others of us, it's examining our carbon footprint and thinking about our energy and our emissions and, and where uh, and how we get around uh, it's for each one of us, it, it's going to start in a different place. But the point is that for each one of us, every single person is called to care. All of humanity is called to balance work and care, humanity and creation, consumption and conservation, and we all have a role to play. Because we are human beings, whether we like it or not, we have been placed in a, in, in, a, in a role of incredible influence over creation. God designed it that way. And, and that comes with an air of responsibility. We actually have the power to shape and cultivate, to give life or to take it away. And our children... And their children after them are going to live directly in the world that we shape. And they will face the consequences of our actions. And if we fail to give any care to creation, it is ultimately humanity and human life that will suffer. I'll end with this. These are God's words to the Israelites just before they entered the promised land. It says, Today I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. See, today I set before you Greed and generosity, overconsumption and moderation, indifference and care, the power to promote life and the power to destroy, the power to steer creation into shalom and human flourishing or to run it into the ground with the result of incredible human misery. Today, would you choose life. Let's pray.